0: and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today, Timothy Egan. He is the author of A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. Why is this relevant to a podcast in the heart of Indiana? Because Indiana was the heart of the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan after World War I. Timothy Egan is a award-winning journalist and author. His books, this book in particular, all his books have won awards, and have gotten amazing reviews. This book is one of the best books I've ever read in my life. Everyone, especially who grew up in Irvington, who grew up a Hoosier, has to read this book, please. It's been called Gripping, Riveting, Chilling, and terrifying mr egan thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: i'm overjoyed to be with you robert and thanks for that introduction i appreciate the kind words and this really is this really is a big indiana story this if for a while what happened in indiana made them the epicenter of the united states It was the trial of the century for a while but we'll get to that
0: let's talk a little bit first about so most people know have some inkling of the clan's Emergence after the american civil war then it had a down period i would give us grant a lot of credit for that but i'm a grant homer but it gradually regained strength what brought the ku klux klan back to prominence. Forget Indiana for just a second, but what was going on in the United States that made the Klan attractive to people?
1: Yeah, it's important to understand that. And that's a good opening question here. Uh, by the way, I'm a Grant fan too. And I was really glad to read Ron Chernow's book on Grant, giving this great general and this great president his due, because for so long, people said thought he was just a corrupt. But he wailed on the Klan. He basically he called him a terrorist group, sent troops down and shut them down. So they were done. They were done by the early 1870s, because of Grant, disappeared into the mists of time. And then what happens? About 50 years later, they reappear in the American continent. Where do they reappear? In your state, in Indiana, in Evansville, on the border, just across the river from Kentucky. Now, what's going on in the United States in the early 1920s? A whole bunch of just fascinating total social changes. First of all, you have what Winston Churchill called the most radical human experiment, social experiment in human history, which is prohibition of alcohol. Okay, long sought goal. Indiana was the epicenter of of part of the prohibition movement because they went much further than some of the other states did. Eventually, they even outlawed having an empty bottle, making that a crime. So prohibition is going on. Secondly, a huge wave of immigrants, but they're not the immigrants that we initially saw coming from northern European countries. They're coming from Eastern Europe. A lot of Jews are coming in. They're coming from Southern Europe, a lot of Italians and Greeks. And the, there's a reaction to these people. Folks say they can never fully be Americans. They'll never adjust to our ways. They'll never speak our language. If, in the case of the Jews, they say they're not Christians. That's going on. And the third thing, it's important to understand this. This is the Great Gatsby era. This is the age of the jazz age. This unique American music form of jazz is breaking out all over, including all over Indianapolis in these clubs. And what does that mean for you and me? It means that women are socially liberated. So they're going out at night. They're going to these clubs. They're going to college. They're voting for the first time. They're owning Mm -hmm. property without the consent of a man. So you got three major social changes going on. Outlawing of alcohol. Huge migration of people that supposedly won't fit and women's social liberation. And then there's one more factor. Blacks are moving north. Okay, the Great Migration. They were confined to the old Confederacy. But in order to break out of Jim Crow, which wouldn't allow most African-Americans to be full citizens, they're moving north. All of this causes a reaction, a backlash, a turning inward, a turning to hatred, and that's the environment in which the modern clan takes hold.
0: How different was the modern clan than the sort of Nathan Bedford Forrest associated re- reconstruction edition of the clan? Because there were obviously a lot of similarities, but, and I speak say this as a Catholic, we were always taught that the clan focused on us as well in the other groups you mentioned, in its re-emergence in the early 1920s.
1: Yeah, that's a great distinction. This modern Klan expanded its range of hatreds. The original Klan was a terror group, and their terror was directed at one group of people, the four million folks who'd been formerly held as slaves in the United States and were now freedmen and women, were now citizens. They did everything in their, their power, using every form of violence, lynching, arson cold-blooded murder, rapings of school teachers, et cetera, to keep these people from ever becoming citizens. The new clan expands the range of hatreds. So Jews, I mentioned, which were coming in large numbers, Catholics, Roman Catholics, excuse me. I'm a Catholic as well, Irish Catholic. Catholics were coming in in large numbers as well. And their foothold was Notre Dame up in South Bend. And the clan reacts to that. They think they're loyal to the Pope. They'll never be able to come full Americans. So that was a rap on them. And these other groups, as I mentioned, you socially liberated women, et cetera. So they just open up this range of hatreds to all these sort of new and different Americans. Now, one more distinction. You asked this question. I'm sorry to go on here, but there's a Mayberry clan on the surface. They're not a bunch of night riders going out on horses like the Bedford Forest crowd go out with the the torches, let's go lynch them. They're the pillars of the community, especially in Indiana. They're bankers, they're grocers, they're teachers, they're coaches, they're lawyers, they're even judges and a lot of cops. So on the surface, it looks like a very
0: respectable group
1: of average citizens.
0: Was this discovery of new hatreds philosophical? Or was it more of a membership recruitment tool or something else?
1: I'm not sure if I can answer that correctly. I'll just tell you this. Every member of the Klan, and remember one in three white males in Indiana, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 people, and upwards of 20 million Americans put their hand on a Bible in order to be a Klansman. And what did you do when you put your hand on a Bible? You swore out an oath. And what did that oath swear out to? You said you will, quote, forever uphold white supremacy, forever, which goes against the Constitution, goes against the 14th, 15th, 13th Amendments. So they swore out this list of hatreds. And it was just convenient to lash out at them in different circumstances, depending on where they were and what was going on.
0: We talked about the Klan for a few minutes. Let's bring it to the, unfortunately... Because when you read this book and you're from Indiana, as an Irvingtonian, I didn't feel any necessarily like guilt, for lack of a better term. But as, as a multi-generational Hoosier, you start to feel it a little bit when you're reading it. So what's happening in Indiana during this same time period? What made Indiana cookies and the clan milk?
1: Yeah. So I've got a little bit of Indiana in my blood as well. Uh, part of my dad's family um, grew up in South Bend although I'm a Pacific Northwesterner. And when I started this book, I was going to do it about Oregon because Oregon had a very strong Klan and Indiana, they elected a Klan governor. But when I was in Oregon, this everyone kept saying, oh, you got to go to Indiana. That's where the story happened. And I guess I was, like, holy cow. What happened in Indiana was just extraordinary. No state in the union ever, and to this day, has ever turned its entire governing system over to a terror group which is what Indiana did in the 1920s. Now, your question's a good one, Robert. What makes your state unique? Why was Indiana unique? Klan hated Blacks. Indiana didn't have a large Black population. Now, there were more people moving into Indianapolis as they were in the big cities in the North through the Great Migration. But your state didn't have a huge African-American population. They hated Jews, but I looked it up. Jews were a small percentage of Indiana's population, less than 2%. There were rabbis, and there were synagogues, and there were prominent Jews as citizens, but relatively small. Immigrants, most of the immigrants were not coming to Indiana. They were coming to Boston, were coming to New York City, they were coming to New Orleans, they were coming to California. But they weren't coming to Indiana in large numbers. So where did this come from? And that's one of the questions that sociologists debate was, Indiana was so uniquely homogenous with the largest percentage of white Protestants that it made them vulnerable to stoking fears of others. The others were outside. The others were somewhere else. The others were coming to change your way of life. That's the best explanation that I've heard.
0: It takes one of the themes of a Leaders and Legends podcast is leadership. Kind of makes sense. And we talk a lot about how leadership is so crucial, how things happen or don't happen because of strong leadership or weak leadership or the absence thereof. D.C. Stevenson emerges as the leader of the Indiana clan. How does he do? What is it about him? You just said people are vulnerable. How did D.C. Stevenson prey on these vulnerabilities and what is it about his personality that led him to choose this path to power.
1: Yeah, D.C. Stevenson is the center of our story. He's the grand dragon of the largest clan realm the world has ever seen, Indiana. And it turns out people adore him. There's a scene in Kokomo on the 4th of July, the largest clan gathering in the history of the Klan. By some estimates, 200,000 people turn out in the cornfields of Kokomo, Indiana, to watch dc stevenson drop from the sky in his biplane and emerge in his resplendent purple robes and give a speech on hatred and everyone cheers him why were they so acceptable acceptable uh, this guy turns out he was a grifter he was a con man he was a liar he was a rapist he was a serial sexual abuser he was a raging alcoholic who backed prohibition and stoked fears of rum runners he was a sexual deviant pervert rapist who gave speeches on the purity of women. He was someone who spoke about white Christianity, and yet he didn't practice any of the tenets of Christianity. But he was a con man. And it's like the musical, (laughs) the music man, people are vulnerable, not just in Indiana, but everywhere, vulnerable to con men. He said things that people wanted to hear. He played to their fears. He was charming, and he believed in the big lie. He didn't believe in telling a small lie. He believed in telling a big lie. If I could just tell a big lie, everyone would believe it. And so he charmed people with his charisma. And within four years of arriving in Indiana, in southern Indiana, as a grifter, just this guy blew in from the plains of Oklahoma, having fled his wife and family, ditched him having raped a woman in a hotel shows up. And then four years later, he's running the fricking state, uh, which is just remarkable.
0: You are listening to the leaders and legends podcast. Our guest today is author historian, Timothy Egan. His book is called a fever in the heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. Who is the woman?
1: So I didn't quite address your question on leaders, but this is, goes to the woman question you just asked. <laughs> when things like this happen, it takes brave men and women, often in the minority, to be leaders, to, to step up and to go against unpopular, unpopular sentiment. In this case, there are opponents. Don't get me wrong. There were many opponents. Catholics, particularly in Notre Dame, South Bend, opposed them. They started a newspaper called Tolerance, in which this brave Irish-American lawyer would print these lists once a week called who's who and bed Sheets, of all the people in your community who belong to the Klan. And he, this guy had his, they threatened to burn his house down, go after his family. He was very brave and he stood up to him. But in the end, he couldn't bring down the Klan because he committed a terrible mistake. He said, Wrigley... The founder of Wrigley's Field and the Cubs was a member of the Klan when, in fact, he wasn't. He got duped by the Klan into, saying, into doing that. And he lost all his money. Okay. Jews opposed them. There was a brave rabbi who stood up one night, went to a graveyard where 300 Indiana Klansmen were assembled in their robes and burning torches, and he called them a bunch of gutless cowards who didn't believe in the Constitution. They stood up to them, but there weren't enough Jews to really do anything. African-Americans stood up to them the NAACP came to town and said, damn it, we're not going to vote Republican anymore if you can't oust this cancer in your midst. Most Blacks, remember, voted Republican at the time. The Klan was associated mainly with Republicans. They failed. All the major... Oh, and one more. The press largely failed. They went along with it, except for a brave editor who I talk about In Muncie, Indiana, who who almost got his ass kicked several times and beat up for a post, but all the my point is all the major institutions which should stand up, press, religion, right thinking citizens failed. So it goes to this one woman living in Irvington, Madge Oberholzer, who's 28 years old and a school teacher. and she has no power. She's a state. She works for the state. She's a Woman of her age. She's a flapper. She had her hair cut short. She seems a very feisty, independent, educated woman of Irvington. Um, and it falls to her kind of accidentally to save the state from this monster who's controlling the state.
0: Women, as you mentioned earlier, they just received the vote. They had, like what happens after a lot of wars the social upheaval that comes during wartime as a result of everyone having to pitch in, and then they come out of it, and the people who have been downtrodden or discriminated against were like, well, you didn't discriminate me when I was helping the war effort, so now I need all these rights. How popular was the Klan among women? Because so much of what I've read, all these social movements, you could turn progressive, perhaps, uh, have this amazingly titanium-esque backbone of women leaders, agitators, I say that in a good way, and sort of moral compasses. But did that work in the Klan? Because in the pictures and some of the things that you wrote, there was a significant female component to it. It surprised me, actually.
1: Yeah. When I was spending all this time in your state of Indiana. I I was very surprised by this as well, Robert. I grew up thinking about the Klan was a bunch of toothless rubes going around in hoods and trying to lynch people in the middle of the night. They were that. But the Klan of the 1920s was, as I said, educated men, but it wasn't all men. And one of Stevenson's brilliant ideas was to make this Klan family-friendly. They wanted it to be the pillars of the community. So he started this women's auxiliary using an evangelical, very charismatic woman who was a preacher and drew these large crowds and he paid her off. got her, She got a take in the same way that he made millions, made upwards of $27 million in modern day money off the off clan fees and robes. She made millions as well. He brought this woman in and before long, they got this clan women's brigade and they're having their own meetings. And then that expend, that extended to the family. They started the Ku Klux Kitties. And one of the things that just broke my heart was to see these pictures of these parades throughout Indiana in many cities. And I have them in the book of these little kids who had, you know, with their robes and hoods, who were part of proud members of the Ku Klux Kitties. And these mothers had formed these little dens where they'd go and learn how to hate fellow Americans. Stevenson's part of his evil brilliance was making this not just a male thing. It was very much a women's thing as well. The Klan's women's auxiliary was very powerful. And the reason Klan sponsored people got into office in Indiana after women had been given the vote is because women voted Klan same as the men. They weren't any better. Now, we talked about Madge Oberholzer was heroic. But a lot of women joined the Indiana clan, this women's auxiliary, and had all these little you know special side events for them.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. The McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, an Irish Catholic bar, Clan do not apply, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest is Timothy Egan, author of A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. So let's put Madge Oberholzer and D.C. Stevenson together. How did they meet? Stevenson attempted a quote-unquote courtship of her, but what led to the fact that he assaulted her so badly it caused the downfall?
1: Yeah, without giving away too much, because I don't want to give away the pivotal twist at the end of the book, Madge lived in one house, University Avenue, and about an eight minute walk later lived D.C. Stevenson. And he bought this mansion and retrofitted it with big columns. And he wanted it to be, to rival the Klan headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. It was this, both these houses still stand as way better than I. <laughs> and and in the middle is the little circle. Irving named, Circle. Yeah, named for the founder. And that's why Halloween is such a big deal in Irvington, because he was the guy who wrote the great Halloween story, the legend of Sleepy, <laughs> or legend of, Sleepy I mean, Hollow. Yes.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And I grew up on University Avenue and would walk past both those houses on my way to school every day. They're beautiful houses that you wouldn't suspect or associate with such horror.
1: And the neighborhood I was really entranced by. It's a beautiful neighborhood. The houses are lovely. The parks are nice. The greenways are lovely. And it has a sort of tradition of tolerance dating to the university being there. There were a lot of abolitionists.
0: Butler University. Yeah.
1: The abolitionists settled there and they let blacks into the college before other people would let him in. It was a really cool place with a real distinction. But of all the places in all the world, this monster decides to build his headquarters and throws these wild, debauched parties with naked women jumping out of cakes and all manner of you know, raging alcohol fueled debauchery going on in this guy that supposedly espoused family values and the virtue of women. And a few blocks away is Madge Oberholster's place. She knows of Stevenson, as everyone did at the time, because he runs the state. He's just got his governor elected, a Klansman elected Governor Jackson. And he's got a Klan legislature. They call it that in the newspapers. That's not my term. They call it the Klan. One of the newspapers put screaming headlines, asking voters, please save us from ourselves. Don't vote in a Klan legislature. And they did it. They knew what they were doing. They knew they were voting for a Klan supported um, slate she needs him to keep her job because it's a state job she's running a literacy program it pays well about twelve hundred dollars a year i think was the figure which was good in those times and the state's going to shut it down in a budget cutting there so the only thing that could save her is to hook up with dc stevenson he takes a liking to her as he often did to many women he charms her As he did with many women, he sends her flowers and notes, and they go out a couple of times, not really on dates. She agrees to go to dinner with him. And then he starts to act pretty creepy. At one point, he drops her off at the home on University Avenue and he says, Why are you afraid of me? And she's startled by this. And then he says, I always get what I want. And so at one point, he has his goons on a Sunday night come down to her house and grab her and forcefully escort her back to the mansion. Now, back at the mansion, there's C. Stevenson getting pied with his other goons. And a series of horrible things starts from then. They grab her, kidnap her, try to get her drunk, put her on a train. The train goes to Chicago, supposedly. And on this train, he forcefully, violently, and cannibalistically, I hate to say rapes her.
0: He chews her. Great word. That's a great word for it.
1: Yeah, because, see, and this is why I saw this thing metaphorically. As Indiana is going more and more on the dark side of voting in the Klan, their leader is becoming more and more depraved. He's becoming just a sick sociopath, if he wasn't already, because he's so powerful now. He rapes women, and he chews on them. He chews on their flesh. And he says, no, nothing can touch him. Why can nothing touch him? This is the immortal words that was the headlines all over the United States. He says, I am the law. I am the law. So he rapes Madge, chews her nearly to death, leaves her on her deathbed. She lingers day by day in Irvington with all the press covering Madge. Day 12, will she live? And Stevenson thinks nothing can get it. Nothing can ever get him. Now, I'm not going to give away anymore except for to tell you this. <laughs> she dies. She dies. Mm. But her words live. And ultimately, in a court of law, her words prove to be the deciding factor in stopping the Ku Klux Klan. Now, can I just give one important national context here? Just Please do to take it
0: out of Irvington for a second. Because you did your book just very quickly. Your book does a terrific job. Obviously, Indiana is the focus, but it's not the entire story. You mentioned Oregon and even places like Texas and others where the Klan resurged with a significant amount of uh, power and activity. So that's that really put everything in context. It made me feel a little bit better as a Hoosier that we weren't the only one. But it, well, Colorado, wasn't that had much. A, yeah,
1: Colorado had a Klan governor, too, so I <laughs> You think of Colorado as this, or, or Oregon, for that matter. Anaheim, they called it Klanheim, because it was Klan run in Western PA, where my wife is from. The Klan rioted and tried to attack all these Irish Catholics in these different neighborhoods. There, also Italian Americans, including Dean Martin, who was yes, that's Klan. right, that's right, that's in your book. <laughs> when they attacked his neighborhood in Steubenville, I think it
0: was Steubenville. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. correct.
1: And so the context is the Klan while Indiana is the epicenter, they got big designs. They got upwards of 20 million people, and they're looking at national office. They've got 70-some members of Congress who are sympathetic to the Klan. They got several United States senators and those governors I mentioned ran as Klansmen and won. So now they have their eyes on the White House, not necessarily in 1924, but in 1928. And Stevenson himself thinks he could be the nominee. Because the existing senator is sick and will die. And the existing governor is a Klan governor who owes his whole career to Stevenson. So he would name Stevenson as the U.S. senator. So they have this whole plan to move a Klansman into the White House. And remember, be 50,000 Klansmen marched down Washington, D.C. in broad daylight, showing their power. So it doesn't just stop the Klan in Indiana. She puts the brakes on inadvertently by exposing them, by showing what a bunch of bastards and monsters and rapists and criminals and alcoholics and grifters and liars they were. By showing their true character, she halts them. But they were this. Don't be fooled by this. And you've mentioned James Madison, an Indiana historian, a good one. He's mentioned this as well. They were pretty damn close to real power. One more thing. They so dominated the 1924 political conventions of both the Democrats and the Republicans that Time magazine put the imperial wizard, who's the capo di capo, the head of them all, on their cover and wrote this largely praiseworthy story about how the Klan was controlling the two political parties.
0: Let's let's stay national for just a second. We were extolling the virtues of unconditional surrender grant when the podcast started about his smashing of the Klan, but in the 1920s it was a little bit different i just recorded a podcast actually with an author who wrote a book called the jazz age president it's a book about warren g harding and he's a little more kind about the Klan in his book than you are about the 26th president is that right whatever he was 29th yeah. president in your book did how would you rate Harding and Coolidge, because Harding dies, I think, in 23, on how they took on the Klan?
1: The Klan liked to claim both of these presidents as basically sympathetic to them. And I don't think that's true. I, I try to be fair and honest and accurate, in all the stuff I do. And there's no evidence that Harding or Coolidge ever had any active sympathy towards the Klan. That's, and even let's go back earlier to Woodrow Wilson, who was sympathetic to the Klan. I'm sorry to say, because he did a lot of good stuff on the international stage, but he segregated the federal workforce, made blacks and whites sit in separate cubicles in the federal workforce. Some cases, there are even little cages. He also wrote a sympathetic history that involved the Klan. And when that mm-hmm. movie, Birth of a Nation, which led to the Klan's popular culture explosion, they, there's a Woodrow Wilson typescript on the screen where he says, and then we all came together north and south and the Klan was good. So he was much more sympathetic. Harding, it wasn't just a likable chucklehead. It was more interested in his multiple affairs with women. The guy was makes Bill Clinton look like a monk. He had, he, he just, you know, the guy loved women and many different kinds of women. And it was a go-along Ohio guy. Who everyone said he looked like a president. That's why he was elected. And he didn't really seem to have strong sympathies one way or the other. He didn't act on the anti lynching legislation, which the NAACP was pushing. Coolidge is a little different character. Now, he was called Silent Cal and certainly lived up to his nickname. He just, the NAACP begged him, begged him as the leader of the Republican Party and the president of the United States to condemn the Klan slate, which had taken control of Indiana in 1924. And he did nothing. He did nothing. When the Klan marched on Washington and turned out those 50,000 people, he said nothing. Your podcast isn't about leaders and is about people who make an uncomfortable stand. Coolidge could have easily taken a stand, and he did not. And by his quiet and by saying nothing, I think he lead, he allowed them to flourish.
0: Let's talk heroes and heroines. Madge Oberholzer is obviously the heroine of your book, but who are some of the other heroes or heroines that that you discuss? The NAACP, I think, is at the top of that list, but who are some others?
1: I have this chapter on what happened in Notre Dame in the spring of 1924, and I don't know how much your listeners know about this. I didn't know anything about it when I started researching the book, but When the Klan was at its peak of its power in 1924 in in Indiana, the only real institutional, this correct word is institutional, opposition was up there in South Bend at the Citadel of American Irish Catholicism, the University of Notre Dame. The other was in a town of Muncie by this scrawny little 98-pound editor who was put in jail, and George Dale was his name. But he waged this relentless campaign, ridicule, urging Hoosiers to come to their senses, laughing at all their, they, the Klan at one point almost bought a university, the University, which they were going to make into this Klan
0: college and turn out Klan clones. So Matt, stop you there for a second. And here's what I want to ask you very quickly. We're, we both have, we're chuckling as we're talking about this. It's obviously a serious subject, but just the insanity of it comes through in your book like they were gonna buy a college Valparaiso and so we're like laughing because it's just so ridiculously absurd a that it could happen and B that people could allow it to happen sorry go ahead I just want to no, make that yeah, point that's
1: that's you said everything that I'm thinking now there were this George Dale this Muncie editor had wrote these satirical columns he's laughed at him too saying they'll have they'll major in lynching they'll major in idiocy They'll he really had fun with <laughs> them and, but they were this close to pulling it off. They were this close. Valparaiso was in trouble in the clam. It was good, it was Stevenson's idea. So let me get back to the institutional heroes. That left Notre Dame. And in 1924, in the spring, Stevenson said, screw them. I'm going to show these Catholic kids once and for all who runs this state. Because they're like the last center of power left against him. So they, he stages this big rally protest parade of Klansmen in May of 1924. And the students have had enough. They've been called foreigners and un-American and had their faith ridiculed and their school ridiculed and everything they stand for and their Irish-American ethnicity ridiculed. They said, screw this. The the president of the school told them to not go into town and fool with these guys, but they broke his His command, and they went into town and they confronted these guys. And it was a student riot against the Klan. At one point, they threw, this is comical on the surface, potatoes at them. The idea of Irish American kids throwing potatoes. And this involved the Notre Dame quarterback, too, one of the four
0: horsemen. Uh, yeah, Notre Dame had the best football team in the country at the time. They did.
1: And their quarterback threw a potato that put out a light of the Klan cross. The next day, there was a, I had this in the book, there was a headline in one of the Chicago papers. It was like a football game. It said, Irish students rout Klansmen. <laughs> and they did. The Klan turned tail and ran like the cowards that they are and eventually got out of town. So these kids really did. Now, here's the interesting coda to that story. I didn't know this. Thereafter, as so the legend and mostly fact has it, Notre Dame, became, Notre Dame became known as the Fighting Irish. And that dates to this Fighting the Klansmen in May of 1924. They're heroic, and I have to give them credit. And there were other Catholics who also I mentioned the, this newspaper Tolerance. but And then George Dale, of course, who was the editor who was thrown in jail. And actually, he was thrown in jail for practicing free speech. There was a Klan judge who jailed him without trial for writing critically of the Klan. Now, if there couldn't be any bigger violation (laughs) of the First Amendment, and later when people went back and looked at this, the Chicago Tribune said, well, the First Amendment applies everywhere in the United States except for the state of Indiana. I mean, a judge was jailing an editor for
0: criticizing him. If you can't do that under the First Amendment, you can't do anything. Was Indiana, to go back to that for a second, were we known throughout the country? You alluded to this a few minutes ago. Let me expand if I can, if I may. was seen as the epicenter of Klan activity. Did Indiana suffer any repercussions as a state? I know that the the reputation even now in 2023 sometimes is a little rough. But at the time, did Indiana face any harm as a state in terms of reputation or business or anything like that because of this Klan presence?
1: Yeah, what happened was this was known and and there was a lot of national publicity about this. Outside newspapers would write stories saying, what's happened to Indiana? Will these people ever come to their senses? And in fact, neighboring states like Kansas and an editor there, William Allen White, who fought the Klan and won, said, what the hell is wrong with Indiana? And the Chicago paper said, "What the hell is wrong with Indiana?" And the New York paper said, "What the hell is wrong with Indiana?" So they were. It was known nationally that this fever was brewing in the heartland that, that they'd turned over. Now, your question is, did they suffer? It's hard to say. They boycotted other Republicans who'd come to their senses, boycotted Indiana, and said, "We don't want to accept you, accept your congressional delegation because you're Klan-infested and your Klan-run." but it didn't really get anywhere. So they largely didn't suffer. They suffered negative image stuff. And what does that mean? In the modern era, that means something bigger. But I don't think they really, and they were laughed at and they were shamed or people tried to shame them. And there's a counter to this too. It's off your point, but I was really impressed by this. And this is the human heart. This is the power of human creativity to endure in the darkest times. At the very time that this hate group has taken over your state, America's gift to the musical world, jazz, is flourishing and being created in Indiana. So I have this scene where Louis Armstrong cuts the first African American jazz album on this day, on the same day of the largest Klan rally in history in this town on the Ohio border. And so I have that chapter because I wanted to show goodness and endurance and rebellion and the power of of a beating human heart to to still succeed in this awful time.
0: We have a few more minutes left with Timothy Egan, author of A Fever in the Heartland, the Ku Klux Klan's plot to take over America and the woman who stopped them. What is the fever?
1: So that's that's a great question, because that's the central thing I tried to grapple with here. How do... Seemingly normal, uh, independence loving, reason loving, big hearted Christian on the surface people take this dark turn? How does this fever take hold? And I really grappled with that because they, these seemingly good people, and I don't like to condemn people as a blanket statement, these seemingly good people really did embrace a charlatan they really did embrace a man who played them they really did embrace a guy who knew that is the most powerful thing you could do as a politician or a power figure was to have no shame if you had no shame if you had no bottom you were like incredibly powerful because most people aren't willing to go there so the fever is they got so caught up in following this guy And how does that happen? How does that happen? How do right-thinking people? So I I wrote this book as a very granular, step-by-step thing. All the historian can do is show people how it happened, and then you draw your own conclusions. And it happened this way. It started with the um, evangelical church, and it was white Protestants afraid of Catholics and Jews and Blacks, and Stevenson got these people to sanctify. The clan. So it had a little gloss of religion over it. And then he penetrated all the other, you know, sort of segments of society, the police, the unions, etc.
0: What happened to the to the men and women you mentioned? You obviously mentioned the fate of Oberholzer, but let's talk about DC Stevenson, because the rest of his life after his conviction wasn't any more glorious than the beginning of the story.
1: No, he started a grifter and ended up as a grifter. And in between, he ran into, yeah, <laughs> the really the five years of his life where he was somebody was when he ran your state. Okay. I'll spoil it. But he is convicted. He spends most of his life in prison and he gets out. And within a short time after being let out, he's now 70 years old. The first thing he does is molest a 16 year old girl showing that he he never changed his colors at all. Most of his subordinates either went to jail, died. Some of them were shot in feuds. The interesting thing to me was that an Indiana tried to have a cleansing. They tried to have a, what the hell happened to our state? A lot of good Republicans wanted to ask hard questions about what the hell happened. Unfortunately, there was a lynching in 1930 where a crowd of people lynched three blacks and took pictures, selfies with themselves while these people dangled in the night. And no one was ever convicted of that, showing that the Klan fever had not quite entirely abated. But people tried to have a, a coming together of what the hell happened here. And what happened was they largely forgot it. They went to the collective amnesia. They chose to forget now, I, was, I don't want to compare this at all to it, but I was just in Germany last month in Munich. This is the 100th anniversary of Hitler's Beer Hall push of 1923, when he first tried to, in fact, it's coming up uh, in November, we first tried to take over the government, Weimar Munich? Republic. Munich? Yes, in Munich. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's where I was. Mm-hmm. And they're having all these commemorations, probably not the right word, to try to understand this, to try to come to grips with how they how this happened. And I was really gratified to see this. My wife is Jewish. I'm Irish Catholic. So she had real mixed feelings being there. This is also, we're approaching the 100th anniversary of D.C. Stevenson, but is Indiana grappling with this? So far, they've tried to forget it. And that's, it was a terrible, people, I get all these letters and notes right now from people saying, oh my God, I'd heard about the Klan. My grandpa was probably in it. I looked up these, you could go to any town in Indiana and look up these clan membership rolls, if they exist, in some cases they've been burned, and you'll see right. your people find these sheets in the attic, and they wonder what the hell happened.
0: I wrote a column for the Indianapolis Star in August of 20, I believe. And it was my take on reparations, and it called for reparations for Jim Crow, reparations for slavery. I didn't endorse, but for Jim Crow, I did for several reasons. And a lot of them are reinforced by your book, the loss of generational wealth because you can't own homes. The list goes on and on the loss of no education prospects, no job prospects. The list goes depressingly on. Is there a case to be made for that? And I don't mean to get into politics per se that, it takes reading a book like yours or Jim Madison's, or choose another one, to really understand how blacks were treated in this country post-World War One, really through the mid-60s, that civil rights era. It didn't get dramatically better, but clearly there was a difference. We don't see, we seem to say, okay, there were slaves and there was the clan and then there was Martin Luther King and now we're right now. Your book does a magnificent job of examining how just an ordinary African American, more so than any other group, in my opinion, had their entire lives dictated by the racism of the people with whom they had to live.
1: Yeah, they were ostensibly citizens, but they weren't citizens. They had no rights of citizenship. In Indiana, they not only banned them from where they could live, basically, not even basically, totally outlawed them from living in white neighborhoods, but as they made a black separate high school, so they would not mingle with whites at all. The bus company, that was a private bus company that ran the Indianapolis Transit Service, decided under Klan pressure in the 1920s, they would not pick up blacks on trying to get to work, trying to get to school, trying to get to jobs and see people. There were a hundred little and big indignities, all of which served to chip away at your essential right as an American. The right to worship the God of your choice. They didn't want Jews doing that, so they firebombed some of the places where Jews lived. The right to free expression, they didn't allow editors to do that. And the way they treated blacks, particularly in Indianapolis, was, it was the only part of the state, by the way, where there was a significant black population. Also, Evansville in the south, where the clans got a start, had a significant black population. But they burned that neighborhood and isolated them, and they were treated horribly. So how do we, in 2023, deal with this? I think we have an obligation to know the truth. And then when you're informed of this history, it, inf- it informs how you'll act as a citizen. Beyond that, I can't take tell you what specific steps any group, any state, any city can take, but I say you owe it to yourself as a civilized and right thinking American to try to understand
0: this history. Is it su- somewhat surprising? This is the last question before we get to the five questions we ask all of our guests. It, when I finished your book, The one thing that I was wondering, and maybe I just don't know enough, so correct me, is it surprising to you that the Klan did not come back in full force as a result of the Great Depression? So much of racism and the othering of people, however you want to talk about it, is rooted in economic insecurity, and the Great Depression is the rock, paper, and scissors of that. that. Is that surprising to you, or did I miss something?
1: No, I don't think you missed something at all, Robert. Again, getting back to Germany where I was last month, when they had the horrible economic turmoil, the mark was worthless and you couldn't buy a loaf of bread. And, uh, that gave rise to Hitler. And <laughs> My it,
0: favorite is you would go to a restaurant and the first thing you would do in Weimar, Germany, is order because the price of the meal would go up while you were sitting there.
1: While you're waiting, I picture there of a banknote stacked to the wall that was like worth a day's wages. So the economic insecurity in Germany was one of the factors. There were others, of course, that led to what they this awful turn that led to the biggest crimes in the history of humanity. All I'll say is we dodged a bullet. I mean, there were certainly demagogic voices blaming the, the people in the lowest rung of society, whether they were blacks or immigrants or just poor people. But we dodged a bullet when we got Franklin Roosevelt in 1932. We elected a guy who had spent a year on his back suffering from polio, and you know, he, though he seemed like a dandy, the fact that he said he'd spent a year on his back suffering from polio at the age of 39 made him understand the struggles of average people. And I think I worked with Ken Burns on a documentary about the Dust Bowl, one of my earlier books. Oh, yeah, great guy, and we chatted a lot about history. And he, I always said, "Who's your who? Which president do you?" hold in highest regard of all the presidents. He says, I would always have to say Lincoln, but recently I'm leaning towards Franklin Roosevelt. And I think this is almost how countries determine themselves. Imagine if we hadn't gone for someone like Roosevelt or we'd gone for someone demagogic, someone who wanted us to turn on each other, how things might've turned out. But it's a great question because we really did suffer in the 30s and and we didn't necessarily turn on each other.
0: We've reached the point on the Leaders and Legends podcast, where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Timothy Egan, are you ready?
1: I don't know if I'll ever be ready, but I'll give it a good go.
0: <laughs> what was your first job?
1: You have to separate it between being a kid where I had a paper route and working on a farm when I was 15 years old, where I worked uh, shoveling shit in a dairy farm. <laughs> really tough job. Made me never want to have a farm job because yeah, you work your ass off. 12 hours a day it's so a dairy farm just hay and poop everywhere and you, it was the hardest work I ever did. And so I would say yeah working on a farm.
0: What was your first concert? Hmm.
1: I think it was three dog night <laughs> I
0: hope spokane, that was a long time ago let me just yeah say I know
1: In spokane Washington
0: Number three if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
1: Boy, that changes with the ages. If you're a kid, I would read the book that my mom gave me that really opened me up to how a kid could be powerful, and that's Huck Finn. And that's Hemingway said that book is if you want to know where modern American literature starts, read Huck Finn. As a kid, my mom gave me that, and it actually eventually led to me wanting to be a writer. Right now, Gosh, I've read so much good stuff. I'm trying to think of what was really instrumental in my thinking. I can't say that anything really changed my whole. I'm going to have to
0: pass on the letter half of this because. No, Huck Finn that. is a darn good answer. It's a tough one. Yeah. Number four if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Hmm. I've not thought about that the momentous things that you think of the joining of the railroads, the moon landing, the the Gettysburg address. Now, I guess I would say if I could be in the front seat of the car with JFK on the Kennedy assassination, I would turn around and say, duck.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you think about Clint Hill said that Clint Hill was, as I mentioned to you, Clint Hill is a, a guest of ours on the leaders and legends podcast. And I asked him that, that thing right there. And he, I remember his answer being Oswald had all the advantages.
1: Yeah. That's the only one that comes to mind, I guess.
0: Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose?
1: Oh, I'm not going to say Taylor Swift just because I'm not (laughs) going (laughs) to. I don't think Mr. Kelsey would let you. (laughs) No. Oh, God, it's just I'm going to lower it down, but it's right now it's between Bruce Springsteen and John Stewart. And I watched Springsteen's podcast and I read his book and he's a very intelligent guy. But Stewart would just we would just be finishing each other's sentences. So I'm going to say John Stewart. <laughs> and he'd be funny as hell. <laughs>
0: True. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Darmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, a wonderful place to watch the fighting Irish, and NFT, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today has been Timothy Egan. He's the author of A Fever in the Heartland The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. The book has been called Gripping, Riveting, Chilling, Terrifying. It's also possibly the best book I've ever read, and I can't thank you enough, Mr. Egan, for coming on the podcast. It's a wonderful read. Anyone listening to this conversation, please buy this book. Thank you so much.
1: High words of praise coming from you of all people. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And hope to see everyone in Indiana in the month of November.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at Robert at That's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com.